Hey there, welcome to the Pretty Little Tribe podcast, a space to talk about all things life, fertility, parenthood, and everything in between. My name is Elizabeth. I am an international fertility coach, ICF certified life coach, birth and bereavement doula, and new parent educator. Join us as we support the tribe throughout their journey from conception to bringing your new baby home and everything along the way. See you in the episode. Welcome back to the Pretty Little Tribe podcast. I am so excited to talk to Jen Taylor today. I was on her podcast a few weeks ago and it was so hard for me not to just jump in and ask her a million questions. She is a mom of 18, yes, 18 kids. She has written the blog, Moms Running, it since 2011. She's a published author since 2016 and host of Becoming Parents podcast since 2017. She's an NLP practitioner, motivational speaker, and has 15 plus years in the foster care sector as both a parent and a trainer. Jen has spent 12 years as a doula, lactation consultant, CBE trainer in the Bradley Method, and birthing from within. And she has run the Leche League meetings with a passion for supporting women who have become moms and is grateful to be relicensing with a specialty in helping moms through grief as a bereavement doula. Yes, yes, yes. She's also married to an amazing man in Reno, Nevada, is a rare minimalist and a healthy lifestyle enthusiast. So, oh my gosh, that is a mouthful. Jen, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So mom of 18, obviously that's a very (laughs) striking statement. Tell us a little bit about that. So how many of those have you birthed? How many of those have you raised? How has that all come about? Tell us more of that. I was told right before my 16th birthday, I went into an OBGYN appointment because I hadn't had my period yet. And it's really interesting having so much retrospect because I'm 51 now. And he said to me, you will, you may not be able to have children expect to go through infertility. And I still don't know what he saw in that situation that would have made him state that the way that he did. It was a blessing though. First of all, it was a great experience with a male OBGYN. I was a virgin. And so he's the first guy that ever touched me below the belt. And it was a great experience. And also he kind of dropped that information in. And like, as a kid, who's just about to turn 16, you're not thinking about having kids but it stuck with me and I did go through infertility. I went through seven surgeries. I was maxed out on Clomid and Provera. So anyone who's gone through infertility just knows what that is, right? Um, I felt like somebody put me in another body and I wasn't real excited about the body that they put me into. Um, I, my doctor hit the point where IVF was the next step and I waved the white flags. Mamas who go on to do IVF, my pat is off to you. I knew innately it was not my journey. In that situation, I, um, he was weaning me off. I was like, nope, I'm done. I'm, I'm done with infertility. Um, and just to throw it out there, I was married at 19 and I was 20 when this was happening. So it's crazy how young I was and that nobody seemed to think that that was a big deal. Although I really wanted to be a mom and it was part of my plan. So, um, I, I told him that I wanted to be done with infertility. It was either going to happen on its own or I would adopt. The other thing that dropped 
like that, those drops in the bucket, I guess, I don't know how else to describe it at 15, I knew that one way or another, I wanted to have a family and that that could be a very out of the box look at things. And I grew up in dysfunction, which is what my book is about. And my third grade teacher made such a monumental difference in my life. She completely changed the trajectory of my life. I, I can't really imagine where I would be without her influence. So I knew you can make an enormous difference in the life of a child, even if you don't know it, just by being yourself. And she taught me that. Um, and because I grew up exact, I, I didn't grow up in foster care, although I should have been put in foster care. So I knew what foster kids were going through. So in this infertility journey, journey, I was like, nope, I'm not doing IVF. I know that that's not my walk. And I know I can do foster care and have a family another way. Wean me off the meds. Literally. What were your surgeries in? I had, I, you know, they flushed my fallopian tubes. They uh, biopsied my cervix. They biopsied the inside lining of my uterine wall. Um, I, he was looking for any indication that something was not right. I had laparoscopic surgery to check for endometriosis, which I didn't have. That wasn't my big issue. And I'm not sure that I remember that's like only four, right? It's been my, it's been like 31 years. So just um, random things. It sounds like basically he was checking the boxes you, yeah. of everything. Okay. Um, yeah. To, to kind of, but I remember like the flushing of fallopian tubes was particularly not fun. Yeah. And I love getting my cervix dilated and the needles on like an extension this long, you know, like, it, it looks like it's two feet long coming at you. I had vaginal ultrasounds that was, those weren't part of the surgeries, but like all of the, were ruling out anything that could be stopping you from getting pregnant basically. Mm -hmm. So, um, from biopsies to flushing and all of that stuff. So they were, except for lap, well, no, la the laparoscopic surgery, they're all day surgeries in the sense that you go in, you are not laparoscopic is the only one I was under general anesthesia everything else it's like local you pretty much feel what's going on to some degree and you leave bleeding and cramping and feeling cruddy and you know that so we were trying to he was trying to rule things out and so you were in your early 20s at this point now i was yeah. i was 20 okay. i was 20 when that happened so okay. At IVF, when I, I just knew that that wasn't my path, I asked him to wean me off of, I was maxed out on Clomid. I think it was 250 milligrams and Provera. I mean, he had to induce my cycle and my ovulation. And he was weaning me off and regularly taking my blood work. And little Asian, like he was short, I'm 5'8", but he was short in my opinion. You know, he was shorter than I was. Super introverted, quiet, lovely man, but very quiet. And he came into the exam room as I'm weaning off medication and he hugged me. And I thought, holy cow, you know, very, very odd for him. And he said, you're pregnant. You are pregnant off of our cycle, our schedule. Wow. You randomly release an egg. I don't know how you got pregnant. My estrogen, my levels were so low, even maxed out. Um, and this could be totally wrong, but my memory is my estrogen is supposed to be 10 to 12 and mine never got above 0.3 that I might be skewed in. I mean, I remember the 10 to 12 and the 0.3, but he's just like, I don't know how it's possible. This is your miracle from God. Wow. Um, 
you can expect to have a rougher pregnancy because my hormone levels were just so low. So I had a very rough pregnancy. And then when my daughter was born, I was told she would, she was born with a lung disease and I was told she would not survive 72 hours and that I would hold her after she had passed away for the first time. She's 30. Wow. Yay. Yay. She turned 30 in April. So that was a happy ending, but that whole experience led me to the realization that uh, if I could get pregnant on my own, that was wonderful. And if I couldn't, I was going to adopt. And I was really very okay with that. I wasn't, it wasn't a super emotional, horrible thing. And I think, again, it was being prepared by that third grade teacher who made such a difference in my life. And the OBGYN, when I was just turning 16, you know, like those little things that drop into your life that make no difference at the time, but later you're like, oh, totally preparing the way. And was your husband at the time on board with that as well? Yeah. Sometimes that, that can be a difference, right? Somebody's like, oh, I'm, I, these things led me to that. And my, the partner's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not down with that. You guys were on the same page. Yes. Because by the time I was alone, when I delivered, we were military. So I was a military dependent alone. Um, when that delivery happened, they emergency flighted him so he could meet her before she passed away. It was the plan. Um, and then he was flighted right back out two days later. And, um, so he met her and left basically. And by the time she was a year old, we were divorced. And it's interesting because, you know, infertility is a really challenging thing to go through. Um, the military can be a really challenging thing in a marriage. This is like the marriage no one knows about. We were together for three years, although we went through so much together. Um, I was on my own at a year old and he was not as involved in her life growing up. When I met my next husband, I was kind of like, look, I probably can't have kids. I will not do anything to have kids. Mm-hmm. And I am planning on doing foster care and adopting and having foster kids in my home. So like, if you're not on board with that, cool, but you're not the person for me. Right. Um, I like how you just put it out there. <laughs> I had no problem putting it. I really, really felt strongly about that whole situation and Um, I was not willing to go through in vitro. I got pregnant six more times. So I was pregnant a total of seven times. I gave birth four and the next three deliveries were home births. Two were in the water. Amazing. And then I lost three. So my biological journey was seven kids. My last pregnancy, I lost twins at 19 weeks, which ended up being a DNC a hysterectomy. And then I had internal bleeding. So they went back in, called in another surgeon. I was dead on the table. I had five blood transfusions. It was very traumatic surgery. And I am just, I feel blessed to be alive through it. Um, so that, that was my biological journey. I didn't expect to have more kids biologically though, after that first one. So when people say, Oh, you took in extras, I think, no, like I, I gave birth to extras. I planned the foster kids. I, I really didn't know if I got pregnant and my chances of miscarrying were high. Again, it's interesting when doctors give you that feedback or information. I don't know why I had such a high chance of miscarrying. Even after the hysterectomy, he's like, you should have met getting pregnant should have been tremendously challenging. And if you had gotten pregnant, it's amazing to me that you uh, carried to term and had delivery. So what doctors saw in there, I'm not sure, but hearing the same thing from more than one source 
and knowing like those were my miracles, those four births were my miracles. I think it also helped me grieve the miscarriages in a different way because I didn't expect to get pregnant and I right. didn't expect to carry a term. Right. So I kind of geared up that this was probably not going to go well if it went anywhere. Right. Although losing twins at 19 weeks with three surgeries right afterwards was not the most fun no. thing. I was not signing up for that one. Yeah. And you'll see with that, the bereavement doula work too, that that's how I started to get into it too, is dealing with the early losses versus once you're starting with those types of losses, it's so different, right? So different. And not only that, but, and beyond, right? So and beyond. yeah. 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 So I, I, after my first daughter was born, by the time she was four, I was doing foster care wow. and, um, I, with my husband, we adopted four and we had two kids longer term. And again, like I would have adopted any of those long-term, um, kids if that had been an option and it was not, it was not an option and I was divorced. So 11 years into that, um, so you guys adopted the four kids on top of the four you already had, and then you guys got divorced. Yeah. And we had two longer term extra kids. So there were 10 kids total and eight kids at home and we were divorced. And, um, I kept doing foster care as a single mom. I adopted one more and I took in three more long-term. So we're- And is that easy to do? I have no idea. Is that something that is pretty- they'll let anybody do it. Not that a single mom is not qualified, but I know for adoption, there's very stringent, you know, rules and regs around that. Is it less so for foster parents? No, but I had nine years of foster care under my belt at the time. Mm -hmm. And I, I, um, knew the family. I knew different family members for this placement. Okay. I wasn't a family place when I wasn't related at all, but because I knew, um, the dad of one of the kids and the birth mom of, of all, all those kids had the same, you know, two had the same dad and three had the same mom. So there were, yeah. So I did, uh, I did another, um, so that was 14 anyway, in that, all of that confusion, I had 14 kids and I had nine under one roof, 14 kids under one roof. No, I had nine at home. I've had 11 to 12 at home for a lot of years. So off and on, I've had 11. If you, if you take like 10 to 12, 10 to 12 kids years, I've had 10 to 12 kids at home, but How do you never even do that. I don't even like, I, I have <laughs> three and I'm like, whatever. And you claim to be a minimalist. And I feel like no matter I how am. many kids you have, like there's just stuff. So there that's is. another conversation, but okay. So then you're up um, to 14, 14 and nine at home. Am I that 30 year old miracle daughter that I already talked about when she was 20, she just, she and a friend of mine decided they were going to fix me up on dates, which I was in the beginning, definitely humoring them about. I was not interested. I was pretty happy with my life and how things were going. I was done with foster care. I had finished that. I had nine kids living at home. I worked very corporate. And, um, like everything was fine. I was, everything's good. Um, however, one of the people that I met, I didn't know that from the, or the first text that we sent, we have been together since that first Aww. text. So Dane had four children and his wife had died. Okay. Yep. And then so since then, here comes the, the 18, <laughs> that, that's 18. 
So I had nine at home and one was moving out and he and his four kids came in. We had 12 at home. So, and then on, and on top of that, in my journey, the only other thing that I would like to highlight, especially because bereavement and miscarriage has come up is that I lost my son at 23. So one of my boys actually, um, he was a missing person at 23 and it took four years for them to find his body and match his DNA. And that was, his DNA was matched August of 2020. So oh 2016, so it's, you know, as an experience as a parent, I, I felt like if I ever lost a child and I'm sure parents can under completely relate to this. If I ever lost a child, the only thing like keeping me grounded would be that I had other kids that needed me. And I also am in a relationship with someone that I, that's, um, he's amazing, right? I love my husband. Um, and I, that's true. That was all that kept me grounded was that I had other kids and some of them were, one of them especially was hurting more. I mean, so much that my primary responsibility I felt like was to help the kids work through that trauma Mm -hmm. while I worked through it myself and actually helping the kids work through the trauma helped me work through my own. So it wasn't like an either or, or I backburnered it. I definitely was grieving the loss of my son. Um, and did you feel that that was, you said four years of missing, being missing? Did yeah. you feel like that process was that they were continuing to look for them? Like, I mean, I've only seen in movies, right, about things like that, where, or did you feel like you had to continue to fight to have law enforcement look, or how did that all go down? Uh, definitely, definitely in every situation with any, anything with kids, you are the advocate, right? Like, we're the advocate for our kids in all situations. There was, this is one of my kids that stayed with me long term. He came into my house when he was 10. And he died when he was 23. And there was a biological mom involved too. So there was a lot of respect for her being able to process things in the way she needed to without me stepping on her toes. So yes, you have to stay on top of law enforcement. However, I mean, they find bodies and DNA is in the data bank and all of that takes time. And that's not an excuse, but it's also the reality. Like they found his body nine months after he went missing, but it took them another wow. three years and three months to match his DNA. Why? I, I don't know why. Here's the thing. No, here's the thing though. People have missing person cases for 30 years, 20 years. We, we only had four years. We got that closure. We found the remains. We know. So in a situation where you have any family member who's missing, the biggest thing is having that closure where they find the body. So are they doing their job? Yes, they're finding remains and matching them and doing things all the time. If you look at the data bank for missing people and the data banks for DNA, I mean, like they're they're doing what they are doing. They're doing as much as they can. So, so I sorry, because I don't really, I obviously don't know anything about this sort of thing. So they find a body nine months after, and then they say, we don't have any DNA to match it to, to know that it's him. Like, why can they not find like a hair of a brush or something at home or like- Oh no, you do, you, you submit all of that into DNA. Absolutely, you submit all of that. So, um, and then, yeah, it's, you know, I don't know why it takes so long. I, 
I think there's a point where I could get, you could get fixated on the things that really bother you. But the bottom line is they found his body. They have his remains. They matched his DNA. Yes, it was three years and three months after they actually found the body. It's not, what am I going to do? Like be happy. <laughs> be retrospect hindsight angry i mean i could but that's not a good place for to yeah. put energy so i'm just feel really grateful they found his body and they matched his remains yes it took some time that's a shame you know it's i mean it's it's one of those things i'm just the i th i guess the point i'm trying to make is that the the grease loss loss and bereavement process is different in all stages of life and when you've experienced a lot of it, and I don't know what, what a lot is, I mean, I feel like three miscarriages, the loss of my son, my stepmom committing suicide. There, there were so many losses in my life like that, that I feel blessed because of how my life was set up and the people that I knew and I met and, you know, that I, I was able to process grief and loss incrementally fairly well, I guess. Yeah, which is you know, not something that you generally think I'm really good at processing grief, but in a lot of ways that's now helping you to help other people process that. And that's such a beautiful gift. And I think a lot of times, you know, it's hard to see that silver lining, so to speak, but there's nothing like being able to speak to somebody who gets you and understands what that is like and can say, like, I hear you, I see you, I've been there, I know, I know what you're feeling right now. And that that goes a long way. So tell me a little bit about I know you guys have been on an RV adventure at some point. How does that work with this big family? All of our kids now are adults except for one. Okay. So where, where a few years ago, I mean, five years ago, we had 12 at home. Our, our kids were all really, really close in age. So if you eliminate the five, um, you know, extra kids that were not legally adopted, um, and we have that other 13, 12 of them were born in 10 years. And wow. if you add in those five, you know, two of them were also included in that 10 year. And then there were two just a little older and one just barely younger. So, I mean, I think in like thir I'm 13 or 14 years, 14 years, we had 17 kids in 14 years. So it was where on the front end, I had three kids in diapers. I was always tandem nursing. I, it seemed like I was always pregnant and breastfeeding and changing diapers for years of my life. On the, on the flip side of that, it was the mass exodus, right? They're all leaving. We had two graduate, two graduate, three graduate, two graduate. And my husband's kids, the older three were the same ages as all of mine. So his youngest biologically, uh, there's an eight year age gap. So we have all these kids in 14 years and then this like eight year age gap and then the youngest. And so she's 12. So all the other kids are out of the house now. I have 12 grandkids. It's wow. a very, right. I mean, like my oldest is 30. All my kids are adults and I have grandkids. So that's so fun when we, because we're minimalists um, and, and what do you consider, like, how do you define that? I guess let's start with that. Cause I feel like I'm organized and would like to think I'm a minimalist, but let's be real, probably not compared to whatever you're talking about. So how do, well, how do you define that? I was compulsively organized, but just because I have shelves where I can compulsively organize 120 pairs of shoes doesn't make you minimalist. Yeah, right, I mean, right, right. Right. 
you know, it's not about a number or I, I, it's very different for everyone, but I guess you use everything that you own and it either, you either use it or it brings you joy, like a piece of artwork. And so, although that looks different for everyone, you know, we have eight plates in our RV. And you live full-time in your RV. We live full-time in a class, 31 foot class C RV. We live full-time. One of our boys has a house with this great backyard and we are parked in his backyard. So we're, we're what you call full-time stationary. It means we don't move. We're not traveling around. We okay. can, which is what we want. I mean, it's a class C, so it's a truck. Um, we can jump in and drive away. It would take me about 15 minutes to get everything done so that we could drive away. And we wanted the ability to do that. However, we are stationary. My husband works in a normal job here in town. Mm -hmm. And I guess we really, what we realized in minimalism, we got rid of about 85% of what we own. We had 12 kids at home. And as they moved out, they had the choice to either take all of their furniture or we would donate it. And it happened that day. And it's not because I'm kicking them out the door and excited. I kind of felt like, you know, somebody's like, oh my gosh, you, your, their stuff is gone the day they move out. Like what's an acceptable waiting period? If I wait a week, does that make you feel better? If I wait a month, like how long do I need to keep their stuff that's not being used? That's just taking up space and collecting dust. How long do I have to do that for yeah. you to feel okay? Like there's, so totally. we got rid of it on the day. You take it with you or we donate it. It doesn't matter to me, but we yeah. started to slowly, you know, as kids started to leave the house, we downloaded, downsized 85% of our stuff. So we felt like we came home every day and there was a tornado and, and we had to put it back together and cleaning was a hassle. We just had stuff and the stuff made, created stress. So we wanted to eliminate stress. So we started getting rid of our stuff. So what living room furniture is your favorite? What do you want this room to be and look like and feel like? And we kind of started tackling things room by room. What do we want this room to be used for? What do, what do we need to have in here? Um, what else can be eliminated that we just don't need? I think we accumulate stuff just to accumulate it. You know, we see something cool at a garage sale or I love to refinish furniture. And then what? Then I have to find a place for it to go. So yeah. what is the plan with that? Um, you know, one of my girls, I was like, you, you have to come pick up your boxes. She had moved out a couple of years before. And she was like, why can't you just move them? I'm like, well, there's 27 of them and they're not mine. And I'm not a storage unit. So you can come here. I will help you go through all of them. She left with seven boxes. And one of them was her hope chest that I had put together from when she was a baby. Yeah. It's that sort of stuff. When you really go through your belongings, like if you don't love it or use it, why do you have it? And we got rid of everything we didn't love or use. Right. And that ended up being like, it doesn't even make sense to say it, but it was about 85% of what we owned. I tried on every item of clothing in my closet. That is. And was this just within the period of time when the kids started leaving and you just kind of were like, okay, let's do this. We're on a rampage of like, let's just like go through purge stuff and whatever, or was it an ongoing th thing, like a constant ongoing thing? Or was it like this period of time that it was all happening and then we realized, okay, we're 85% less than we were. And so now what do we do? We just decided that we were both really stressed and hated to clean and organize a house and that it was overwhelming. So we were just doing it through the house, having nothing to do with the kids. And my recommendation is just be the example to your kids and your kids kind of pick up and start doing that on their own. So we did that when we had 12 kids at home and had nothing to do with the kids leaving. It had to do with the sanity level in the house. And once we started to do it, it's so freeing. 
right? And you walk into a room and you feel good. You're not stressed about being there and you're not stressed about picking it up. So yeah. minimalism looks very different for everyone. You really have to go room by room. But did I need 120 pairs of shoes? No, I did not. I 100% did not need that. I wasn't using them. I was collecting them. Yeah. Somehow it made me feel good to own them. I, I, I don't so know. How, how many I, shoes do you have now, Jen? Probably like 23, but that's including hiking. Like Wow, I'm, I'm surprised. Yeah. That's a lot. It's a lot, but you know, four of them are for running and one's winter boots. So that eliminates that. And then like four pairs of sandals, one pair of heels. Yeah. Just, yeah. It still is a lot. hundred yeah. percent. And then um, how do you get from, okay, we've downsized to 85% to, Hey, I have an idea. Let's live in an RV. I think there was just so much freedom in owning less. And you start to realize how much it's affecting your budget because you're not in the mindset of consumerism anymore. So you're right. saving money by just not buying things. And it's really eye-opening how much time you spend buying things that you don't want or need and how that fills some sort of, you're trying to fill some sort of void or it makes you feel better. Yeah. And when, you when you're going through the minimalism process, you stop purchasing. And so your stress goes down and your budget goes up and you think, oh, this is interesting. Let's capitalize on this more. And for me, because I think I moved around so much as a kid and I, like I've lived in Reno for almost 18 years, but I could leave in a second and be totally fine with that. I don't feel connected to the place that I live. Also, when you move a lot though, like I did, like I have my whole life, it's also, that is stressful just to move. So right. it was a way for me to keep my home with me and still yeah. be able to move and to go anywhere. I also kind of expected that our adult kids would start to spread out across the country. And it would be a way to have my home and visit them. Um, they haven't, 14 of them live here in town. Wow, <laughs> so how funny. They have not spread out. And that is a big part of why I still live here. But, you know, it just gave me, it was a way to decrease enough to continue to have that freedom and de-stress. And there's this point where you realize like I could drive away with pretty much everything I own yeah, and do anything I want. And that was really appealing. Although there was, it huge was freedom. Stressful. It was a huge freedom. Wow. Like just even thinking about that for a half a second in me, it's like, what can that even feel like to just up and go at any point with everything you need? Right. And everything that you love, that you use and brings you joy. And I mean, yeah. with 18 kids of bringing home their craft projects, there was a lot of sentimental <laughs> stuff. <laughs> like, there's I'm laughing lot. because we have stacks of, you know, I mean, there was a adorable lot. things, right? Oh, they're perfect. And it is the best painting I've ever seen a five-year-old do it. Honestly, <laughs> it's 100% is. Um, but we had a lot of that stuff. I and bet sentimental items are super hard. So we, we, we had this big table because there were a lot of us and I put everything any kid had made in their pile. And I just kind of said, what is the most special for you that you want to keep? And that needs to go into your room. And then I would like to keep three things that you've made that are the most special to me, but then the rest of them, we need to have an exit plan. Like yeah. they, need to, they need to be donated or thrown away or whatever. And I did that with every single one of the kids. So I kept, you know, three things about from each kid 
and they kept the things that were, were the most special to them. And yeah, there's and- this great product now. I don't know if you've heard of it called Archive. A-R-T. Yes. Yeah. So that's what I do with our kids. So we, I collect them, put them in the box, ship it off. And then it comes back in a book form of all the things that they've made um, and drawn. And then I get rid of the, the real thing yeah. and give them a book. I digitalize everything. Yeah. Just everything. I put everything digital. So we have it all. Yeah. But it's not physical. So. Right. Right. And so once you guys got to that point of, okay, yes, we're in an RV, did you feel that sense of freedom and like shift overall, even from, because it sounds like you were very minimalist before even, but like just knowing that you could kind of get up and go and how does that feel inside? There's a lot of stress, even when it's something you're choosing and that you want to do. We were in a thousand square feet and we went, this is 250 you know, our RV is 250. So even though we had been doing it for seven years, we, you know, we, we started our minimalism journey over seven years ago. And we'd been kind of, at some point we were working towards this goal. We did a couple things to make ourselves feel better about the process. And one was, this is not the dream RV in the sense that I didn't use the dresser my parents bought when they were pregnant with me that my dad refinished. Like it, it couldn't go into this RV. So ideally we would have a different floor plan and we would do a renovation where we could bring that stuff. So we have a storage unit and it's not a big storage unit and we own very little. We have no, if we bought a house right now, we have no living room, dining room, bedroom. We have no furniture except right. for like that dresser and an, a desk, a little desk and an end table. Like it's so little, we, we own so little. We would have a very empty house. However, it was what we weren't willing to let go of. And so that was kind of like a safety net, right? We'll have a, we'll have a storage unit and we can take our time. We're also stationary. So we're not figuring out how to travel while we're figuring out how to live in a space this small. Um, We've been, we've been here for two months now. And we also realized that although we want it, you know, we have a 12 year old daughter and wanting it and the reality of it may be two very different things. So we were very upfront discussing the emotions that we might go through, like, are we going to get in each other's way constantly? Are things going to bother us? Is the learning process, is the learning curve going to be super challenging? And we decided that we were going to allow six months of being kind of irritated living in this space and that we needed to commit to six months to figure out how to do it. Right. And actually within two weeks, we, my husband and I looked at each other and he's like, this is so easy. Like, this is so much easier than we thought. And I think it was the amount of preparing ourselves that it's okay to both be super nervous and wonder like, oh my gosh, are we making a huge mistake? And look, we can go rent a house. If it's terrible, we can go rent a house. Yeah. Airbnb. So, I mean, it's, yeah, you take, yeah. you know, we have a composting trial. When I go places where there's a flushing toilet, I use more toilet paper. Like you just figure it out. You yeah. just, but in two weeks, we didn't, we didn't get in the way of each other. We, things that we thought we might struggle with really, I think if anything, we learned that we, you just, we just keep pulling things out of the RV because we don't need as much as you think you're going to need. Like storage, yeah. container. my, my rubber made for leftovers. Like I, I need to cut it in half again, right? We do, we are not going to use all of those. So yeah, you just figured out, but we haven't had any issue. It is so freeing. And when we come home from somewhere, you go and do stuff and you come home, it's such a relief to be here. But really, if you hone down 
what you love and brings you joy in a 250 square feet, it doesn't matter where I look or what thing I pick up. It's, it's that favorite thing. So basically you surround yourself with the things you love the most. Yeah. And I think you mentioned earlier something about the, the, like the clutter and the stuff and how that affects your brain. And most people don't realize that it literally does affect your, and that's why when you do clean up and you do have organization, it helps everything else in your life flow a lot easier in lots of different ways. So, well, thanks for giving us that little insight into that. I want to just circle back real quick because I was driving downtown in LA yesterday and saw a a bus bench that said um, about fostering siblings like something about the fact of like if you're considering foster fostering please like consider fostering siblings um and that of course it's like i don't i can't foster an animal because i don't have it in me to like love this animal and have it go let alone a child so for people that maybe have been struggling with fertility or it's been a calling in their heart that they want to adopt or foster what are what's like some advice that you would say to them as a takeaway from here of like if they're going to go down that road this these are the couple things that i would just give you as advice to 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 work with so to speak be super clear in what you can and can't handle when you fill out the paperwork it feels like feels very cold and impersonal and a lot of people really struggle with the filling out of the paperwork of what you want and you don't what you don't want and one person described it to me as like picking out a puppy this isn't picking out a puppy and it's so vital because you need to know what your limitations are not and what do you mean like what you want what you don't want like what in regards to what in the beginning i had you know only little girls okay like I had given birth, I, my oldest daughter, and then four years later, when I started foster care, I gave birth to another daughter. I did not want teenage boys who had been sexually abused. Right. I need okay. to know like that, that was a hard no for me. Right. Um, you learn a lot about issues that kids have. I did not want to take a child that had fetal alcohol syndrome. Okay. So, so you, you do get to choose what you're able to take Here's on. the thing. I said no more than I said yes. So First, just because if you're interested, go through the licensing process, because going through the licensing process will help you know if you're interested and you can get licensed. So there's the licensing and then there's the home study. And I'm still able to do home. I'm still licensed to do home studies, actually. And so there's those two parts. So the classes will really help you know, is this what you want to do? And then the home study is about you specifically. So if you're interested, do it. It's not, it's costing you very little, if anything at all, to do the training. It's mostly your time. And if you're interested, it's time well spent, right? It's for the state of Nevada, for standard foster care, it's 27 hours of classes that they do in the evenings. Um, You know, they have a schedule and you show up and you do the classes, but you're not going to know if you don't start doing it. Mm -hmm. And in those classes, you're learning a lot about some of the situations that you might be exposed to. And you need to know, is this something emotionally you can handle or is it not? I Mm -hmm. learned what I felt like I could handle and what I couldn't handle. And that's part of filling out the paperwork. Some of that is sibling groups. Like I don't want to do a sibling group more than two kids because of whatever your situation is or feeling like it would be, you'd be um, spread out too thin. Yeah. You know, I mean, like for you don't have to have a reason that you don't feel 
like it's a good fit for you. It doesn't mean you're incapable. The other thing to be really aware of is that there are a ton of specialties within foster care. So you have foster care and in that there's a foster adopt program and there's medically fragile kids. There are foster parents who do emergency foster care for the first three days and wow. they don't they don't ever, they're not, they're like never planning on keeping a child longer than three days. So, you know, there are, um, there are all of these subsets within foster care and you may feel really called when you're learning about it. Like, oh my gosh, kids that are medically fragile. I mean, it's not something that I did, although I was trained to handle certain medical situations. I could, I could place an NG to feed an infant, for example, I could gram weigh babies. So I, through some of what you do, you get exposed to things and you have to decide, is this something that I'm comfortable with and that I want to get trained in? And you may realize like, wow, actually, I love that. I, I want to work with medically fragile babies. They deserve these children that are medically fragile, who it's quite possible are not going to live, have something long-term or terminal. Right. They deserve to have the best possible situation for the amount of time that they have left. And you're really called to do that. And you have the ability to do that. So just know that foster care doesn't look one way. Okay. It really depends on what you feel you can handle. And if you want to go into one of those specialties in foster care and you don't know till you start, so start. Mm -hmm. And as far as the filling out of the paperwork and that it feels cold, yep do it. Yep. You need to know what you can handle and what you can't because here's the thing. And I'm a God girl. And I prayed about every single phone call. And I knew if that child belonged to my home or did not, and you can figure out your process of doing that. Um, if that child, if you feel like you can't handle that situation or that child does not belong in your home and you do it anyway, it's going to be a bad experience for the child and you are robbing the right family of their blessings. Mm. there's nothing wrong with saying no you need to say no you need to set boundaries you need to keep yourself emotionally healthy and you need what's in the best interest of that child and you can't save everybody you're not greenpeace this is not like go out save the world right one it's one child it's making a difference to that one and yes i got lots of them mm -hmm. <laughs> i mean you know i have 18 kids 10 of them came from outside of biology but I said no more than I said yes. Mm -hmm. so yes to those 10. And you get used to the fact, you get trained in the fact that your number one goal, unless you're taking, you're in the adoption program where parental rights are or have been terminated, your number one goal is to give the biological parents the time and space to get healthy and reunify. And what gift? When you think about loving this child as your own and then giving them back to their parent, how hard that is, flip the script a little bit. You are offering that child what he or she needs in stability and learning things and working through their trauma at the same time that those parents are getting the help they need. What a gift to be able to bring them back together in the end. It's incredible and it makes me want to cry because it is so beautiful and these children need need that love during that time and to your point the parents too because yeah it's such a beautiful thing that you're able to do that for so many people those those 10 individuals that you've 
put such a great impact on their heart, I'm sure of. So, well, thank you so much for being here, Jen. Where can people find more about you and follow you and learn about your adventures and all that good stuff? Momsrunningit.com. Okay. And um, yeah, then you can reach out to me in whatever way you want to reach out to me. Awesome. And your podcast. Tell yeah. us what's your podcast. Tell us a little bit about that too. Um, becoming parents, you know, it's everything surrounding becoming parents. And so I guess um, it's from your infertility journey, your, your pregnancy experience, your birth experience, um, what it was, what it's like to parent kids, the struggles or stresses that you have, the joys and wonderful things. I've had a couple dads on and, you know, I, I stay super focused on the moms. I'm a mom. I say, focus on the moms. We've gone through all the same stuff, but I love having the dads on too. So don't eliminate. And I've even had one couple came on together to share their experience at the same time. That's fantastic. But basically it's everything surrounding becoming parents. So it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, thanks again for sharing your life a little bit about all the, all the ups and downs and in-betweens and being here with us today. Have oh. a good rest of your day and we'll talk soon. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pretty Little Tribe podcast. Follow up on Instagram at the Pretty Little Tribe or at Elizabeth King underscore coaching for updates, resources, and a community to connect with. If you are looking for extra support and tools to guide you along your TTC and parenting journey, visit elizabethking.com. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast everywhere you're listening for a chance to receive a special gift. Visit elizabethking.com backslash pretty little tribe podcast for more information on how to enter. Any review counts. I just appreciate your honest feedback so I can provide you with the best support possible in your TTC and parenthood journey. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.